So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains descriptions of abuse and some discussion of suicide, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. For Justin Davis, hockey began as something pure, something innocent. My journey with hockey was just a simple one. I grew up in a small town of like a thousand, two thousand people, and I got off the bus and we threw our backpacks in the ditch and we played road hockey and we'd walk with our bags to the arena and, and pay two dollars to play shinny and that's that's just what we did and hockey was just a part of us and we looked forward to watching hockey on TV and Don Cherry on Saturday nights. My name is Justin Davis. I'm a high school teacher in Orangeville and I have a wife and three kids, and I'm a former professional hockey player. But when Justin began to play in organized leagues, things changed. It became immediately clear that he was better than everyone else on the ice. And that was a problem. Because I was a really good player, an exceptional player in our league at a lower level, I was scoring four or five goals a game to the point where people were mad teammates' parents were mad, and and parents of other teams were mad that they thought I was embarrassing them. Those parents didn't just dislike Justin. They hated him. They hated a seven-year-old. And being on the receiving end of all of that vitriol took a toll immediately. At times, he'd be desperate to give the puck away. I'd be on a breakaway, and I'd pull over to the side and just kind of curl and look for somebody else to pass to and try not to score again. And people don't realize you're seven years old. Like, I think they think you're arrogant because you're good, but it has an effect on you. And I realized after I'd score four or five goals in a game or got an MVP of a, of a tournament, I would sneak out the side door of the arena or I'd put my head down and I'd always put the medal in my bag and my parents would meet me in the car. The line always is at seven, eight, nine, ten is nobody from here is going to ever make the NHL. So why is it such a big deal? And, and you think to yourself, like, you got these kids dreaming of these, of these opportunities or playing at a higher level, but you just want to cut them down. That's a lot of it is just jealousy and uh, it's tough to deal with as a seven-year-old. From then on, Justin's relationship with hockey would never be the same. He continued to move up the ranks, making it to higher and higher leagues, even getting drafted into the NHL. Despite his success, Justin was never a superstar. He was a journeyman player, one of tens of thousands chasing the dream. And at almost every step, when hockey gave him something, it would also take something away. I'm Archie Mann, and this is Commons. And on this episode... We're going to be examining the toll that hockey exacts on so many young men and boys like Justin. 
to their mental health, to their physical bodies, and above all else, to their innocence. A few years ago, Akeem Aliou, a black former NHL player, published an open letter called Hockey is Not for Everyone. In it, he talked about the racism he'd faced during his career and detailed how he'd famously refused to participate in hazing rituals. When Justin Davis read that letter, he got upset at Aliou. I'd been initiated and hazed at three different levels. So by the time I got to the OHL and some of the initiations and hazing happened, it just became just second nature to me. So when I read his story and here's a guy that refused to do some of the initiations that we all did. And I just thought like, what's this guy doing? Like, who is he to think he's bigger than the game? As I read it and looked it over, I just realized as a 44 year old father of three, like how wrong some of these things were. And once I started to realize what he'd been through and why he'd kind of been picked on as a rookie, I had a self-evaluation of myself and how I reacted, and it just kind of took some layers off the onion and, and, and led me to see things in a different direction. Justin used that clarity to write a memoir called Conflicted Scars, An Average Player's Journey to the NHL. It's a remarkably honest account of the travails that many boys and young men face in trying to make it in the hockey world. And the way that Justin describes it, the world of junior hockey sounds less like a sport and more like a cult. But it all started out innocently enough. Justin Davis grew up in Carlisle, Ontario, a small community outside of Hamilton. And despite how good he was, he played in the same league as all of the other kids. Well, it was a different time period where small town kids played for small town teams. Now you have parents driving two hours to play in the nearest AAA center and paying $10,000. And our parents would never have done that because it was a different generation. By the early 1990s, when Justin became a teenager, he did move to the newly created AAA team. That was the opportunity to play the highest level hockey that I possibly could. I realized that I could play with a lot of the best players in Ontario, and I realized that I actually was a good player, just not a a good small town player. And it was there that he first realized that hockey could be something more than just a fun thing to do in his free time. I remember a game I played in London. It was the first time that we played a playoff game and I had an unbelievable game and had a hat trick and uh, a scout from the Sudbury Wolves had talked to my dad and it was the first time that I realized how close I was to major junior hockey. If you're not familiar with the various Byzantine levels of Canadian hockey, here's what you need to know. Major junior is the stepping stone to the NHL. The Ontario Hockey League, the Western Hockey League, and the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League have 60 teams between them with players as young as 15 and as old as 20. And while there are other paths to an NHL team, these leagues are the most established. So when a scout from an OHL team like the Sudbury Wolves saw Justin excel on the ice, he was one step closer to turning hockey into a career. But he was also soon to learn a lesson that a lot of young hockey players learn. A lot of people are going to make promises to you, and they often don't mean what they say. I was told by the Sudbury Wolves to come to the draft, and they were going to draft me in the first three rounds. So my dad and I drove to the draft, and we sat in the the stands. We heard name after name being called, and after three rounds, I didn't hear mine. So I remember us asking people, 
Is my name called? And my dad and I were just so naive. And they said, no, actually, you didn't get drafted and uh, you have to wait till next year. And I remember us driving home together and it was from Belleville. And you have these memories. I always joke, I can't remember my kids' birthdays, but I can remember leaving the Belleville Arena. I can remember stopping at the Wendy's along the way at the one rest stop. And I just remember saying, I don't know who did this to me, but this is not going to happen again. Hockey's a a fight or flight. I could have quit right there and said, this isn't for me. But that's where I I said to myself, I'm going to prove some people wrong. Justin kept playing, continuing to dominate, and the next year, he was finally drafted by an OHL team. Getting to play in the OHL is life-changing for many reasons. For one, you often have to move out of your house. It's funny you show up for the weekend, and all of a sudden they say, would you like to sign a contract? And you say yes, and next thing you know, you're taken to someone's house, and you have a backpack of your underwear and toothbrush from that weekend, and your parents are driving your clothes up, and that's the last time you live at home. So it's a surreal experience for a teenager, for sure. This type of living situation is fairly unique to hockey. The people you stay with are often complete strangers. Justin would billet with a number of different families throughout his career. And the first time, at least, was rewarding. It was a great experience. I had a great family, the Mueller family in Kingston, and uh, they made me feel like I was one of the family. And every day, no matter what happened at the rink, we'd come back and we'd have dinner together. Another very notable fact about major junior hockey is that the players aren't paid a salary even though the teams are for-profit businesses. We used to do the math on the bus all the time. We're like, okay, there's 4,000 fans there last night paying 20 bucks for one seat. We're taking a bus there and back. We're not staying in a hotel. We're limited to the sticks that we get. And then for one playoff game, that's an extra 4,000 seats and an extra 4,000 seats. So we used to joke about like where the money's going. Instead, compensation primarily comes in the form of an education package after you graduate. But in Justin's experience, very little about his life during those days was about education. That was the irony, right? When I'm looking back and saying their selling point was that I'm going to give you this school package. And then I got traded twice and I took grade 11 math and I got traded to the Sioux and they were on a different unit and I was fell behind. So I just failed it. And then I took it again the next year and the season ended. So they sent me back to my home high school and I failed it again. And it's the third time I actually had a real whole semester taking it and I passed it. The OHL boasts that 99% of their athletes graduate high school, but that doesn't necessarily mean all of them received a full education. So I remember I needed a grade 12 English because I thought, you know, eventually we all think we're going to the NHL at that point, right? But I thought I need a grade 12 English and... So they said it was full, but they said uh, there's an English as a second language class. If you guys would be interested, you just can't tell anyone. Justin and the other players in the ESL class were asked to sit quietly in the back of the room and occasionally run errands, like the time their teacher found a stray cat outside of her house. She said, I got a cat in the back of my car. Can you guys drive it to the SPCA and come back? So we passed that one. That was a, we passed that assignment. It's funny, like it's funny now looking back on it, but it's definitely some advantages you got as being a hockey player compared to other people. And these players got those kinds of advantages, often because they were the biggest names in town. When you play in certain cities like Sault Ste. Marie and small towns that people know who you are and it's a, it is a big deal and it's a, it's a lot to take as a 16, 17 year old when you're nobody really in your town and all of a sudden someone's asking you to, to sign their jersey or sign their hat or have a picture taken with them. 
I think a lot of the issues with hockey and hockey culture are just that the maturity standpoint where you're putting these young kids in these where everybody's giving them everything and you're getting snuck into the side door of bars and people want to give you anything that you need and yet your frontal lobe isn't really developed at that point and your your rational decision making isn't uh, isn't great. And here, I think we get to a really fundamental paradox in the life of a young hockey player. In your town, you might be a celebrity, some kind of a big shot. But on the ice, you're just one member of the team, just another body. This is a dynamic in a lot of team sports. But hockey takes it to an extreme. You watch LeBron James and these other people talk and they have personality and the hockey guys, it's we had a great first period. We're really working hard. We're getting pucks in deep and uh, looking to have a great second period. And there's no personality and that's taken out of you. I mean, you spend every day with the same 20 guys in a dressing room without your parents. So you walk the same way, you talk the same way, you dress the same way. Everyone gets an SY, right? Like Millsy, Halsey. And you wear like the tapered track pants right now and uh, your hat backwards in your team jacket and you laugh at the same things and the individuality of you is just broken down and taken away. So when you talk about hazing, now saying all this out loud, part of that is, is taking away your individuality, right? Like it's, you're one of us now, we've all done this. Justin was hazed many times. Sometimes it was kind of silly, a little lighthearted. Other times it was cruel and vicious. But almost always, it was sexual in nature. It's funny to look back on it where hockey has this kind of uncomfortable relationship with uh, LGBTQ right now and wearing jerseys, yet every initiation hazing I was involved with me getting naked with guys on my team and stuffed into small spaces. And this is what people wanted us to do on the team. He was 15 the first time he was hazed. So they would shave your body. They would shave your head and they'd put a funny imprint into your head. And then we were told to, uh, I was put in a jock and told to go into the local grocery store or the IGA at the time where I knew everybody and go into my jock and buy a case of mix for the drinks for the party. So I walked in basically naked and you see people you know and you're embarrassed and came out of the grocery store and then we were taken to a hotel at the corner of Highway 5 and Highway 6 and it was uh, one of those one-story motel. They rented two rooms, I think, for about 30 bucks a piece. And we were told to wait in one room. And when they let you in the other room, you would go in. And then we would take our clothes off and, and do a push-up with your uh, genitals and a, a cup of beer. And uh, after you're done that, you drink the other cup of beer that was in the room. And then you start to realize that what you've done, you've drank the beer from the other guy that was in there. and But then when you come out, everybody high-fives you and then they celebrate you. And you leave with the sense of euphoria, thinking you've accomplished something. Now I'm part of the guys. But it was the first time where I'd done that. And you're just, I remember just sitting in bed thinking, what just happened? Like, this is really my first experience with alcohol and then all these other things. And uh, that's, where, that's where the innocence, I think, was taken away. And what people don't realize is, is you're 14 playing with 20, 21-year-olds. So there's 20, 21-year-olds there making you do these things as a grade nine. And hockey is really the only sport where we join these age groups together. And so these guys that had done these things probably three, four, five years earlier, it's normal for them to do it. And that's where a lot of this kind of cyclical traditions of hockey culture come from. One of the worst traditions is the hot box a more brutal form of hazing that Justin was also forced to endure. 
I mean, you're asked to take all your clothes off on the bus. You tie a skate lace to your genitals. And then as you walk down the bus, everybody pulls on the skate lace. Then you get to the back and you have to tell a joke. Nobody laughs. And then you get into the bathroom and they turn the heat on and you're in there for 30 minutes, an hour, hour and a half, however long they decide that year it's going to be. So by the time you get into that hot box initiation, you're so broken down by the different levels and the nudity and taking your clothes off and that you're just used to it. You just get in. There's no part of me that said, I'm not doing this. And Justin says that all of this was happening while their coaches and trainers were sitting in the front rows of the bus. When he sat down to write his memoir, Justin realized that he had blocked some of this stuff out. That's what I didn't realize till I wrote the book, was that I'm going through the scene on the bus, and then I had to ask somebody if they tied a skate lace around her genitals. And that's something that would be like front and center on someone's brain, like etched in there. And I didn't even have, I couldn't even remember. I had to ask people. And then you start to think, well, hold on a second. The coach was four rows in front. So they heard everything that was going on. Like contacting people after I had coaches reach out and it was denied that this even happened. And then out of the blue, I got a random text a day later after I talked about this. They said, actually, the same thing happened the next year. And the coach was the one to knock on the door after a couple hours and say, that's enough. So not only do they know what's happening at the time, but it's just this act of denial that it never happened. Uh, it just stays in the game. What's crucial to understand here is that this isn't just some random violence and humiliation. It's all done to drive home a message. You realize that your body and in your life really doesn't belong to you anymore. That idea that your body doesn't belong to you is truly hammered home if you're traded to another team. For Justin Davis, that moment came in his second year in the OHL. During his first season for the Kingston Frontenacs, Justin excelled, racking up 48 points in 64 games. He was drafted by the Washington Capitals. His future seemed secure. But his next season didn't go as well. You have the weight of the world. You come back, you're one of the top players, and you think this is going to be a great year. And people in the town are going to love me. I'm going to be an assistant captain, and we're going to win. And you you talked earlier about how, like, all this pressure of a 17-year-old, and you don't know how to cope with it. And one weekend, you don't score. And then the next weekend, you don't score. And then the coach is criticizing your play. And then you get on a bus to a road game to go play. And as you're getting off the bus, the coach says, oh, you're not playing tonight. You look at him stunned and you know you have your parents there and friends are there to watch and you're just like you're embarrassed. Like you're it's it's okay to say as an athlete that sometimes you're just embarrassed and having to sit in the crowd and tell people why you're not playing and and then you take the bus home and you're thinking about that. Then you go to your strange person's house you're living with and lay in bed and then you gotta wait five days for the next game. It just continues to build on you and when no one communicates you with you. And, and that's that's what happened that year. It just continued to snowball. And I look back on it now as a mental health standpoint, no one talked about that, but it's tough to do something really well when you're you're so down on yourself and everybody's telling you you're not doing a great job. My buddies are at home in high school and if they fail an English test, their parents are telling them they didn't do a good job and you got to study harder. I'm doing it. I'm playing terribly. And it's getting written in a newspaper that the entire town's reading and it's being put in the hockey news. And then the scouts for the Washington Capitals are calling me and saying, what's wrong with you? And then my dad's calling and saying, I talked to the scouts from the Washington Capitals and they say, you're not doing this well. And so the whole world 
closes in on you and you just think of your buddies back home and they're just dealing with these simple things that teenagers do. A sophomore slump is common, but it didn't make it any less devastating. Halfway through the season, Justin was traded from Kingston to the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. I was writing a math task, got a knock on the door, go to the rink, and they say you've been traded to the Sioux, but the Sioux's playing in London tonight. So if you can somehow take this train to London, someone will pick you up there, and then you'll dress that night and play for the Sioux against London, but then you're going to get on the bus with your backpack and bus back to the Sioux at three in the morning and then walk into a billet's house who you've never met and try and find the bedroom that you're supposed to sleep in that night and then go to the new high school the next day. And this is all in less than 24 hours. So from a knock on the door to waking up in somebody's house I'd never met before was, was eye-opening and definitely it just strange. The time he spent in Sault Ste. Marie was some of the most difficult in Justin's life. First, there was clearly domestic abuse taking place in the home he was billeting in. When you're lying in your bed downstairs, and at that time we didn't have we didn't have iPhones, and so the phone would be upstairs. So when you're isolated in your room and you have no TV and you have nothing to do and you hear the things that are going on, it's traumatic. Like it's it's really tough, and you really want to help out the person involved in it. But it's not a situation a 17 year old or 18 year old should have been in. Not only was hockey going bad at the time when I was playing in the Sioux, then you got to come home and find a safe space in a house just to get through that that night. What am I going to say? Am I going to go to the coach and say, hey, there's domestic abuse in my house. I'm not happy. I'm not feeling safe. And all we can think of is that I'm not playing well. I really have no value to the team. So we kept our mouth shut. We didn't want to say anything because we didn't want to get sent home or be seen as a problem. What makes all of it worse was what was happening to his body. Justin had suffered a serious concussion once before when he played for Kingston. And I was skating up the ice and someone kicked my feet out and pushed my chest back. And in the game, we call that a slew foot. And it's one of the most gutless and dirty plays in the game. And with that, your head slams back and I hit my head off the ice. And I remember I got up, went to the bench and uh, I told the trainer, I think I have a concussion. And he came down and trainer is a strong word at that time for, for people who cared for your injuries. It was a hotel manager and uh, our trainer at the time used to put his dentures in a cup in the dressing room, and he uh, he looked after a hotel and was a great guy. But to have him diagnose being in and out of consciousness and whether I should be going back into the game uh, it was it was a tough decision. So he said, I think you're okay, and the coach put me out for the power play. And that's the only time in hockey I ever remember going out for a shift and not even knowing till after the game that I went out for that shift. And I started throwing up on the bench, and uh, they waited for the period to end, they didn't just take me off the ice. They waited for the period to end and they took me into the dressing room and they, they put me in the shower with my equipment on and they turned off the lights and said, we'll turn the lights off. There shouldn't be any light. And uh, because we don't have another trainer or doctor around, we're going to go out and play the third period and you're going to just sit in the shower. So I remember laying in the shower by myself in a dressing room in Barrie while my team's playing the third period. And then they came back in, they turned the lights off, they asked me to get dressed and then I took the bus home and I practiced Two days later, and I continued to play after the fact with really no thought put towards that maybe I suffered a severe, a traumatic brain injury. But his worst concussion came when he was on the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. They were playing a game in Plymouth, Michigan. So we were playing a, a playoff game in, uh, in Plymouth. I made a pass and took a couple steps up the ice and got blindside checked into the boards and... I got knocked out uh, immediately. When I was on my back, I had that 
the fencing syndrome where your fingers are kind of up in the air and it's, it's a, basically a traumatic spinal injury to where like your body doesn't know how to react. I was out having convulsions on the ice and I woke up in the dressing room of the Detroit Whalers and I just came to and I didn't remember anything. And when I got in the bus, I just remember I couldn't stop throwing up. I didn't know where I was, what was going on and throwing up. The trainer asked how I was doing and I said, I'm not doing well. And he'd go back to the front of the bus and then the, the bus took off and headed for home. And I didn't know what was really going on at that time. And I just remember I almost passed out in the bathroom and I was throwing up and the players were basically saying like, he's not doing well. But the GM wanted to get us home because it was a playoff series and they wanted to get everybody a good night's sleep and ready and back to the Sioux for the next game. And the trainer finally said like, that's enough, stop. And he was the first trainer I had in the OHL that was actually certified. He'd done the job in professional hockey before and he said, we're going to the hospital. So the bus pulled in the hospital, he walked me in, they dropped me off and I was taken immediately to ICU and they left me there. I was left on my own. They got back on the bus and uh, I was diagnosed with bleeding on the brain through a CT scan. And my mom ended up driving through the night and stayed with me for, for three days. And I just remember like the nurse taking out bedpans and not moving and just being on IV and my mom sleeping in a chair beside me. And I flew back to the Sioux probably about three or four weeks later and didn't play the rest of that season. First, the team didn't even want to stop for Justin. Then they abandoned him in the U.S., what came next was even more insulting. The team sent my parents a bill for $15,000 for the medical bills. They weren't going to pay the bill because the injury occurred in the U.S. and my contract was uh, to play in the Ontario Hockey League in Canada and they weren't going to pay the $15,000. The only thing that changed their mind was when Justin's agent threatened to go to the media if they didn't pay for his medical expenses. Your body belongs to the team, but it's only valuable to the team if you're producing on the ice. Future Hockey Hall of Famer Joe Thornton was on Justin's team at the time, and Justin is sure that there's no way the team would have treated him like this. Joe Thornton's a friend of mine, and he's a great guy, but if that had happened to Joe, the GM would have been sleeping in bed with him, I think, and there would have been lots of care. And the hierarchy of the time, I was a third, fourth line winger. I wasn't playing great. So it's, we'll leave him. His parents are coming. He's in good care. He's in the hospital. There's nothing more we can do, but we need to get the rest of the team home. And this isn't going to affect our season. Justin was in a town where he knew no one, living in an abusive home and struggling on the ice. He was suffering from splitting headaches. He became depressed, and at times, he was suicidal. Well, I think you, you go from Justin Davis, from Flamborough, Ontario, to Justin Davis, the hockey player, and every time you sign your name, there's a number beside it, and people have these expectations. So when you feel like you're letting your family down, and you're letting people back home down, and, and you come home, and you're a disappointment, and you may not make the NHL, it's, it's tough to face that. And you don't realize really the value you have as a person. So all my value is put into myself as a hockey player. And when that was taken away and beaten down and I wasn't performing, then it was like, what's the point of me continuing 
to live and, and do these things. And I'd rather not face the shame. You've already faced the embarrassment of coming out after games and you hadn't played and facing your friends and family. And then you're doing this wrong and everybody tells you you're a failure. So that's a tough part of it. And we still deal with that in junior hockey. After he published his book, Justin's father read it, and he was shocked by everything his son had gone through. I remember my dad texted me and just said, like, is this stuff true? And I just remember saying, unfortunately, yeah, it's it's very true. And I remember he just said, like, if we had known this, your mom and I, we would have taken you, uh, we would have driven up there and taken you home right away. And I just remember saying to him, like, it sounds great, Dad, but I was so broken by that point, there's no way you're getting me in the car. This has nothing to do with you guys and what you put me into. This is, you were told a lie by certain people and you trusted people and and they let you down. It's just this long journey that leads up to that point where you're broken down. Justin credits his survival to a fellow hockey player and to his parents who called him every night. Eventually, he was traded again, this time to the Ottawa 67s. There, he played for Brian Kilry a coach he respected and who respected him. Brian Kilray is a Hall of Fame coach, and you knew what his expectations were on the ice, and he allowed you just to kind of have some fun as well and be a teenager and just get out and have some fun. Bit by bit, Justin rediscovered some of his passion for the sport. The 67s went on to win the Memorial Cup, and Justin Davis was the tournament's leading scorer and even assisted the championship-winning goal in overtime. He never went to go play in the NHL. Instead, he went to the University of Western Ontario, where he played hockey for four years. So you take out all the negative aspects you talk about in junior hockey. We know this is going to be our coach for four years. We know we can't get traded. We know this is where we're going to live. And you could just take a deep breath and relax. So it was the first time we actually took advantage of hockey when it had taken advantage of us for so long. He helped Western win a university championship and would later win the Allen Cup making Justin Davis a champion three times over. And he continued to play for a few more years, including in Germany, but he had long ago stopped chasing the dream. For Justin Davis, writing this book was a truth-telling exercise. But it wasn't just aimed at the hockey world. He wanted his family to understand him better. And he wanted to understand himself better. Because the truth is, that he didn't really talk much about his hockey days. I hid all my rings. So my university ring and Memorial Cup ring are all the back of my underwear drawer and my draft jersey and Memorial Cup jersey and all these things are in the back of my closet. And I just remember the kids looking in sometimes and saying, oh, Dad, what's this? So the book was an avenue to kind of explain those things. And rather than have to tell them everything, it was almost like, I'm going to write it down, you read it and, and go from there. And it was also a way to explain what might be happening in his brain. Justin estimates that he's had maybe 12 or 13 concussions in his life, and he worries about the toll that they've taken on him. I was feeling anxiety, and I was feeling depression as a result of these things, and there's days where I felt like I was in a daze, and I said, I need to get this fixed, especially when you you read about former athletes and where they end up, and and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, like I said earlier, is I didn't know where I was going to be when I was 60 years old and what I was going to remember, and and we know, watching a game last night, like you saw a guy clearly get knocked out, came to the bench, they looked at him, they said, oh, it doesn't look like he's going to the dark room. So protocols say he should go to the concussion protocol and 
they analyze him, but they don't want him to miss a shift because it's the playoffs. And then the announcer even makes a joke and says, looks like he's got his wits back. So you hear these jokes and, and it's just like, we need people to protect us from ourselves. That's it, right? Like that player is going to go on no matter what. But if you take the five minutes to make sure they're all right, because then you end up like me here, you're 45 years old with a family and you're wondering, like, I wish somebody had told me not to play and I wish I wasn't in the state that I am now and someone protected me. Justin Davis says that he battles with whether or not he hates hockey. And to be honest, when I spoke to him, I think it was a day that he was being a little easier on the sport. Because in his book, he is far more disparaging towards hockey. And I want to read a passage that I think captures the anger that he felt when he was confronting these memories for the first time. Quote, I am overcome with emotion as I write this because deep down, I am still afraid of these people. I always tried to seek their approval and the risk of the blowback I'll receive after exposing these frauds overwhelms me. This is what it must feel like to leave a cult. You become scared of the reaction of the people that treated you so poorly, and you become terrified of the repercussions of telling the truth. Hockey has been hiding behind the hockey code for too long, and we were told what happens in the room stays in the room. Why did I want to protect the game so badly? I learned at 15 that it was normal to be shaved and to drink someone else's bodily fluids. I learned at 17 that someone could yank on a skate lace attached to my genitals as hard as they wanted to because my body belonged to the team. I watched my first pornographic movie on a team bus with players masturbating all around me. What was abnormal behavior became routine. I was a great kid with fantastic parents, and I entered the real hockey world as a naive 13-year-old. It took me 20 years and three of my own kids to realize that the adults involved were the ones who failed me. Justin's son is an accomplished athlete, just like his father. He plays both baseball and hockey. He was eligible for last year's OHL draft, and he he didn't get drafted and didn't get selected. And he got to that point where he had to decide, do you want to play baseball or do you want to play hockey? And he decided that he wanted to continue with his baseball and just play a little bit of high school hockey. So I think deep down, I was a little bit relieved. I'm glad it ended, I think, where it did. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Justin Davis, Jashvina Shaw, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Annette Ejifor, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, 
included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canadaland merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. And you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.